So we continue our work this morning in spiritual formation over a lifetime, looking at the life of David and both in our spiritual formation class before church and in this sermon series, we're making use of Eugene Peterson's book, A Leap Over uh, the Wall, or A Wall. And if you'd like to get that book, you're welcome to, and as you'd like to, follow along with us during this last few weeks of Ordinary Time. This morning, we're going to give our attention to work as our place of formation. The idea is that our work, our places of work, whether we're getting a paycheck or not. So don't just think of the place from which you get a paycheck. This is the primary context for our formation into Christ-likeness. Human work is the spirit-anointed participation in God's work, in God's world. That is to say, God is superintending human history and he's at work in the world, right? And so when we enter into our work, we're entering into a participation in what God is doing. And this is why there's a dignity inherent in work. And that this means that an essential task of the Christian then is to recover work as vocation, uh, work as holy work. That it's not just people like me who do holy work. You know, I mean, essentially what I do is I run organizations, and I always have. There's literally never been a time in my work life when I haven't been in charge of something. And so that means HR problems and leadership issues and budgets and finance and managing cash. Yeah, look at me. I manage cash. It's, it's not just you guys who own businesses or you ladies who own businesses. Yeah, I have to manage cash, right? So, I mean, I just work like everybody else works. I mean, the truth of it is I prepare sermons as a hobby. And just it's my own nourishment. It's, it's just what I do on the weekends. Seriously, Monday through Friday afternoon, I work, just like everybody else does. And then on Friday afternoon and sometime on Saturday and a little time early Sunday morning, I give myself to this kind of work. But it doesn't, you know, I'm not defined by either that which I get a paycheck for or the work that I do kind of for fun. What we want to get at here is that human work is all the goods and services that we produce based on the resources and gifts that are given to us for the good of others. And see, now that just sweeps everything up in. It sweeps up your family, your neighbors, your hobbies. It sweeps up anything. It's just, it's, it's whatever God's given us, we then add our hands to it, and we shape it and form it into good goods and good services, things that are actually good for others. And this is, this is the idea here of then taking our workaday lives and turning them into vocation. Because here's the big idea this morning. If we omit our work from our spiritual formation into Christ-likeness, then we are omitting the hours that we're most conscious of ourselves and others. Right? Most people, after they go home from work, they go home and watch TV or whatever, right? So if we omit the interactions that happen all day, every day, typically in our work, then we omit any possibility of finding spiritual growth in our work. And so when we pick up the story this morning in 1 Samuel, what we see is that it seems like Saul has lost his interest in God in favor of his interest in his work. And if you, if you know the story of Saul, you know that his disobediences and sins came precisely in the context of his work, right? So it looked like things were going bad. There was no priest around to offer the sacrifice. And so, you know, Saul likely thinks to himself, 
well, I've got to take things here into my own hands then. And then he offers the burnt offering, sacrifices the burnt offering, which he knew to be wrong, that that was the role only for the priests. Or you'll remember in his work as king, God asks him to, you know, take no plunder, but he does. And he has a rationale for it. Well, Lord, I kept the plunder so that we could make a religious sacrifice. This was a religious thing. And so what we can maybe glean from this is that Saul kept trying to bring God into his work, which is okay as far as it goes, right? It's better than not doing that. But the downside is, is it treats God like a resource to be used, right? So just think about the the mindset that says, I'm going to invite God into my work. So now you're a resource for what I'm doing. That's a very different thing than bringing ourselves into God's work, right? So it doesn't matter what you do. You could be an engineer, a school teacher, a therapist. You could work at City Hall over there. You could teach here on campus. You could work in the administration here on campus. It doesn't matter what you do. Wherever you enter into work, God is already there working. And it's far better for us to discern how it is that God is working and enter into that than to think, no, my work is something separate than my religious life, but when I'm conscious of it, I invite God into that. Again, okay as far as it goes. It just doesn't go nearly far enough. So we see the story here. There's a turning point where it says the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and this evil spirit comes upon him, or this deep depression. The scholars are mixed. But it shows us that so the one king is in the process of being disposed. The spirit is lifting off of him. David has been anointed as king, as we read last week. But note what David's first job as king was. It was service. His first job didn't look anything like what a king would look like. His first job was to write poetry and make music and to play the lyre, sometimes translated harp. But lyre is not like a big harp. Like if you've ever seen Christie play harp, it's not like a a big harp. A lyre is more something like a small lap harp. You know, it fits on your lap and you play it with a pick instead of strumming it with your fingers. And so David was anointed to write lyrics, right? Sort of like an early Lennon-McCartney together. (laughs) Write poetry, make music. Why? What would be the meaning of that kind of work for somebody who's thought to be a king? Isn't that beneath the dignity of a king? Wouldn't a king have his own work he's doing that if he were pious, he might invite God into that work. But random, strange, you know, out of, somehow seems out of phase, that this king would be given this modest work of writing poetry and making music. Well, you know, isn't that beneath the dignity of a king? And Eugene's answer to this in his book is, no. God was using David to establish the divine order in Saul's disordered mind and emotions. In this sense, Writing poetry and making music was good goods. You see, what makes our goods good or not is the effect that they have on others, right? Ideally, the goods and services that human beings have been able to create would be good for one another. And, of course, David is entering right into the middle of this, and it's what helps us know then that work is and can be a good thing. And that work is actually the natural disposition of human beings. That our work, again, not just what we get a paycheck for, but including that, our work is the way that we creatively seek to bring good goods and good services to others and then be a blessing to our surroundings. 
This is why Paul said, you know, these famous things that you'll remember he said. Remember Colossians 3, Paul said, whatever you do, work from your heart. Literally, that's the Greek word suke. And so Paul is saying, and his original hearers would have heard this differently than we do. You know, we, we tend to think of Paul saying, whatever you do, work with all your heart, and okay. But he's saying, no, whatever you do, work with all of your soul. Work from your suke. That is to say, the deepest part of you creating good works, working as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that it's from the Lord who you'll receive reward. Or Ephesians 6. Paul said that our job as Christians is to do the will of God from our suke, from our soul, from the deepest parts of us. And so to do this, if we are actually going to live into that, the first and most basic thing that we can do is to learn to keep God before our minds. Now, again, David wasn't perfect about this, obviously. I mean, he had moments where Bathsheba's nakedness overwhelmed having God before his mind and temptations to military sin and temptation to arranging Bathsheba's husband's death, right? He had moments where he couldn't do this. But in his best moments, he wrote Psalm 16. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. And this makes my heart glad, and I rejoice, and then my body rests in safety. That, that's David at his best, when I can keep my mind fixed upon God. Now, I don't normally talk autobiographically in this space, but I feel like to be really explanatory here, I have to. Here's the way this works for me. I mean, I can literally put my hand over my heart and say to you, my dearly beloved, that this is the way I live my days. That is, I'm about to make a phone call. I've just learned to say now, now, Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done in this phone call. Now, now all that does, well, that's no, not all it does, but the main thing it does for me, it makes me now present. Or if I'm feeling a little fearful about something, maybe I'm about to have a hard conversation or the cash is low, then I'll remind myself, now the Lord is my shepherd. I do not have to live in the tyranny of my wants. Or if I'm going through something in the day, I might just utter, just no, come Holy Spirit. I literally go through my day that way. Now, I could do much better holding God before my mind. But I've been practicing that now for so many years, decades, that those things have become triggers to me. And so just the reminder that I'm always safe in the kingdom of God. That's maybe my favorite. I'm always safe in the kingdom of God. That then, then that triggers something in me where I realize, yes, I don't have to be shaken. The Lord is beside me. My heart can be glad and I can rejoice in my life as I presently know it. I don't need for my life to be different to know and enjoy the goodness of God. Now, those are just my little practices. You'll find your own, and you should find your own because they should be authentic to you. But those have been my practices now for going on 30 years. And so can you see how those then become triggers? Now, they weren't in the beginning. In the beginning, it sort of felt like that, you know, uh, phrase from therapy, you know, fake it till you make it, you know, or from Alcoholics Anonymous, which is good. I'm not putting it down because that's the way it feels, right? Like, everything in me feels different to the way I'm acting. Well, okay, but act right. You know, like, you'll make it. You have to go through this liminal experience, this awkward experience of having one foot in one reality and one in the other. But okay, don't do bad just because that's the case. Do good, even if, feel, even if it feels false, right? So in the early days, I often felt that way. I, my followership of Christ felt awkward. Just like the time I took ballroom dancing with Debbie. It felt very awkward. And so my, my first moments of trying to take this serious felt awkward. And worse, it feels hypocritical. What I really want is naked Bathsheba. 
But I say to myself, no, I don't have to live in the tyranny of my wants. But what I really want is naked Bathsheba, right? And so then you have all these awkward feelings, all these accusatory guilt, shame. You know, I'm a hypocrite. And I just want to say to you, yeah, okay, that's true, but it's not the law of gravity. It's not determinative. It doesn't mean you're stuck there. It just means you're going through this threshold experience of moving from one reality to another. And so it's a fundamental aspect of our giving ourselves and our formation to God in our work and for caring for our own souls in our work is to practice the presence of God and to just do what we can to gently, humbly, non-religiously just continue to direct and redirect our minds to the presence of God with us. As I said, our present habits of heart and mind, they're going to feel burdensome, and we're going to know that our, our habits are often about thinking of things less than God. But don't worry, new grace-filled habits can replace the former ones as you just begin to take these little intentional steps of keeping your heart before God at your work. Knowing that what we're doing when we do this is that we're joining God's loving plan for creation. But, I mean, that can seem a bit much. I mean, if you just think of these words that are so easily just religious rhetoric, you're created in the image of God. Now, I would venture to say that there's not one in 10 of us in this room who have ever thought that through, right? I mean, we we might put it on a plaque in the kitchen, you know. I am made in the image of God, right? Or evangelicals, we make it into a song, so we might sing about it. But like wrestling that down to the point of your deepest imagination, it's right. I don't I don't blame anybody. I'm I would be probably nine, I would be one of the nine and ten. Because how do you get your brain wrapped around that? Like what can that mean possibly? any more than just mere religious rhetoric. Because it suggests a power and a dignity and a responsibility and a partnership that seems impossible given what I know to be real about me now. Well, it's no wonder that a shepherd boy wrote Psalm 8. Lord, when I consider your heavens, just think of all the nights that David got to lay out in darkness and look at the sky. Man, Lord, when I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in their place. What is a little shepherd boy like me who you've now made king? What is someone like me that you're mindful of me? What is somebody like me that you care for me? I get that David wondered that. The message Eugene has it this way. I look up at your macro skies, dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry, the moon and the stars mounted in their settings. And you again, picture him laying on the grass saying, then I look at my micro self and I wonder, why do you bother with us? Why do you take a second look our way? Again, I, I totally get David's awe. I might have told you before the story of when Debbie and I were moving from Yorba Linda to Boise, Idaho. Our car broke down somewhere probably on I-15 in the middle of Nevada, middle of nowhere. And I remember standing out beside the truck, I don't know, it was probably 10 or 11 o'clock at night, totally dark around us, and looking up into the sky. And, you know, growing up here in Orange County, right, we never see stars, or rarely. And I looked up, and honestly, I felt disoriented. I almost felt afraid. I almost felt like the world started spinning, like somebody who has vertigo or something, which I've never had. But I can just imagine... And literally, I I was feeling a little bit afraid, not like I was out in the dark afraid like a little kid or even that our truck was broken down. I mean, AAA, I'm sure, was coming. It was that, my God, I am so tiny. Like, how do I fit into this? Like, what does all this mean? 
Like, if that's all real, how do you give any care to my little speck of matter? Especially when we know, you know, from Voyager and Voyager 2, Voyager's now been out there about 40 years. It's traveled 12 billion miles. As it leaves our solar system, I'm told, it'll have to travel 40,000 years before it encounters another star. And that the edge of the observable universe, which is expanding all the time, is about 46 billion light years. Now, with the unaided eye, you know, without going to the Griffith Observatory or something, we might be able to see on a good night a few thousand stars. But the Milky Way contains up to 400 billion stars. Some giant galaxies have 100 trillion stars. And scientists think that there's probably more than 170 billion galaxies in the observable universe, which means if you ask how many stars there are, it's 10 to the 24th power. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And who are we? Seriously, you're supervising 10 to the 24th power stars? Who are we? And the answer is... I've given to you the Genesis charge. I've given you my handcrafted world and repeated to you the Genesis charge to come work with me and to be servants in all I've created. Now, our gospel reading, Jesus says something stunning about this. And you know, you know the story. The, he's with the woman at the well. The disciples have gone into town. They come back. They know it's way past lunchtime. Let's say it's 3.30. And they're worried that, he, well, they're probably nervous, first of all, and then also probably sincerely worried that he hasn't had anything to eat. And so they say, Lord, you know, shouldn't you be eating? And again, he says this thing that you go, well, what the heck? I have food to eat that you know not of. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And again, what the heck? Think about what Jesus is saying. He's saying what fundamentally nourishes me is a close participation in what my father was doing in this woman. That nourished me. And I could see the hand of my father moving in this woman. And I could see the Genesis charge given to me to work with him in his created world with this woman. That was nourishing to me. And that's fascinating. Giving out as nourishment? If we're just playing word association and I say nourishment, you say what? Take in. Take in food, take in water, take in sleep, Right? Nourishment is something you take in. Jesus says, I'm finding, and then it's not that that's bad or wrong. So let's say in addition to that, Jesus is saying, I find nourishment in my cooperative friendship with my father. I have bread to eat that you know not of. You know, the devil thought he had Jesus by the ear when he tempted Jesus with bread. Remember the temptations? Because he thinks Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. That dude's hungry. So he thinks, I know how I'll get him. I'll, I'll just say, you know, Turn these stones into bread and you're golden. What he didn't know is that it was the precise opposite. Jesus was the strongest he had ever been precisely because he had been fasting. Because fasting is feasting on the reality of God. His fasting had made him so in touch with the reality of God that turning stones, rocks into bread was the least appealing thing. Are you kidding? I'm working with my father here. I don't need your little trinkets of you giving to me all the rulers of ancient Palestine. Do you want me to go back and read the stars a bit again? Jesus is in touch with 100 billion galaxies. And you're answering me a few buildings that are just stones put upon one another and somebody living in them who thinks they're important. 
And you're asking me to give up everything I know to be true as the second person of the Trinity for your little offer? It's not the slightest bit interesting because he was feasting on God. He had nourishment. He literally had food that was invisible, that was a spiritual nourishing of himself on his father that even made his cooperative acts with God nourishing to him. And we don't have time to deal with this this morning other than maybe to set the question before you that it's fascinating to me that for most of us, giving out has been the path to burnout. So then it just raises the obvious question, well, what's the difference here? How is Jesus being nourished? And for many of us, serving God in the church has been the path to burnout. I mean, historically, this has been a church of nuns and duns, uh, people who are just sort of done with church and making their way back. And I think part of the reason we make, when we make our way back is that we realize that there is a way of being with Christ, even being with him as his cooperative friends that we can find as nourishing. And as I said, we, I don't have a lot of time to go down that path, but nourishing meaning to say something like, in it we find a sustenance that's good for us and a, a kind of satisfaction, not in a cheesy, uh, uh, what's his way, in a Mick Jagger way, <laughs> Um, but we find this kind of satisfaction that, that is in coherence with being who God intended us to be. And so in that moment, as Jesus is who God intended him to be to that woman, there's a nourishing there. Now, he may have been hungry and legitimately need food, and it might have been 3.30 or 4, and he might have needed a nap, and he, maybe he took one, right? So in a sense, he, he, he took in things that were nourishing to him, you know, maybe they went into town to get some fish tacos or something and a root beer and came back and said, you know, here you go, Lord. And then, you know, okay, I need a nap. Great. Those are nourishing. But we, if we're going to take Jesus at all seriously, we have to try to, to wrestle to the ground. How did it work for you that being the cooperative friend of your father you found nourishing? And Lord, can we make our way to that path so we don't find cooperation with you leading to burnout and leading to cynicism about the church? Suspicion about the goodness of God, our inability to really be what Psalm 8 suggests we are. That has to be wrestled down, or most of us will just land in this awkward, neutral, inactive place, not knowing really what to do. So this morning as we come to our quiet time, I wonder if you can think of an area in your life that needs some recalibration, an area of your work, again, not just what you get a paycheck for, but all your work in life. I just saw a grandma caring for a, a grandbaby. That's a kind of work that she doesn't get any pay for, but it is a kind of work. So now if you just hold that before your mind and ask yourself, okay, are there places that maybe I need some recalibration or maybe a recommitment to practicing the presence of God in my workaday life? Maybe you can begin to imagine with me taking on little practices that would help you throughout the day redirect your minds constantly to Jesus in a non-religious, non-meritorious, you're not trying to earn anything, non-fearful, but just a loving my father, loving the Genesis charge he's given me to work in his handcrafted world. How can I make myself present to that? Take a moment and consider it. Okay.